You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor at The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how it works. We've got five rounds of questions about us, Black history, the whole diaspora, current events, everything. And with each round, the questions get a little bit tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic Black fist and hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we'll still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a Black bonus round at the end, which I call Black Lightning, just for fun. Our guest for this episode is Diallo Riddle. Diallo is an actor well-known for playing the character Stevie on the Netflix comedy series Marlon, opposite Marlon Wayans. Riddle has also appeared on several seasons of HBO's series Silicon Valley, as well as Curb Your Enthusiasm. Riddle, with his creative partner Bashir Salahuddin, have created two critically acclaimed series on television, HBO Max's Southside, which is my personal favorite, and AMC IFC's Emmy Award-winning Sherman Showcase. It's a scripted musical variety sketch comedy show. Sherman Showcase is executive produced by John Legend, and it's the stylish sketch show moves to its own groove and invites everyone to laugh along uh, alongside A-list guests like Issa Rae, Common, Chance the Rapper, Quincy Jones, and Lil Rel, just to name a few. And as an Emmy and WGA-nominated writer, actor, showrunner, and moonlighting DJ, Diallo has proven to be one of the most creative and multifaceted talents in the entertainment industry today. I am super excited to welcome Diallo Riddle to my show. Welcome to The Blackest Questions, Diallo. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. And just because this is the blackest, uh, uh, you know, the blackest of the black. Uh, I have to point out that we won uh, the NAACP Image Award for directing an episode of your favorite show, Southside. Yeah, that was, that, that, that was a highlight of, of my life. I'm one of those weird, creepy people that meets folks. And, you know, when when folks are like, oh, what are you watching? I'm like, if you're not watching Southside, there's something <laughs> wrong with you. You know, I become like one of those proselytizers where it's like, you know, it's <laughs> it's the year of our Lord 2022. Are you watching Southside? All right, what temperature y'all want? Well, let me speak for everybody. 75. Hurry up. This is fake. Congratulations, Picasso. You just discovered our new line of placebo thermostats. Gives employees the illusion of control. I think it's such, and I've told you this before, because we've Mm -hmm. known each other for a long time. I think it's such a love letter to black people, to cities, obviously to the city of Chicago. But it's like, if you are from any city, first tier, second tier, third tier city, it is such a beautiful love letter to all the different characters who live in a city and the shenanigans off, that ensue. Listen, I think first off, if you're calling your city a third or fourth tier city, just get that chip off your shoulder. We got love no matter where you live. No, I think you're absolutely right. One of our favorite movies, uh, me and Bashir both, uh, is Coming to America. And in that movie, you saw black people of every strata. And we always felt like that movie was also a love letter to the black community. So I, I truly do believe that uh, you, you, you hit it on it. You, you've picked up on exactly what our mission statement is for that show, which is to show how life is like, not even necessarily in city versus country, but just in whatever black community you're from. So it can be the South side of Chicago. It can be Southwest Atlanta, South Central LA, South Philly, South Bronx. You see the trend here. Black people like living South of the city and we're here for that. 
We point cameras south of the city. We're like, they're the black people. What are they up to? I love it. I really do. I mean, I see myself in so many characters. I feel like I've met all these characters at some point in my life. And I think it's so interesting that I hear that you love Coming to America because obviously that's my favorite movie. I could go, you know, if someone said, I can give you a million dollars if you can quote every single line from Coming to America, I would take that bet, right? I literally wrote a book called Black Ethnics and it's like an academic analysis, basically of <laughs> coming to America. Like that's how much I love that movie. It's like I, I mean, every part of it is good. I, I feel like I, I feel like I've watched it enough times now where I can actually say pretty definitively it is like if somebody gave you know the money for three half hour episodes because literally there's like a very clear mark at the thirty minute mark yes. where yes. they leave Africa and come to America. And there's a clear break at the thirty minute mark. He's 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 settled in into America. I think the middle 30 minutes of that movie is actually the funniest. Yes. And then there's a, you know, where, where he's now pursuing um, his bride-to-be. And then, like, you know, it's just, it's so clearly structured, and yet it's just, like, a perfect little, it is almost like um, what Wes Anderson is, I think, to, like, the white yes. persona, like, that movie is to the black persona. It's like a heightened reality, full of jokes. Uh, it was extremely well shot, actually, by John Landis, but I hear that him and Eddie got into, like, Yes. A lot of fights over yes. over the editing of that movie. And I, I believe it because there's some things I'm just convinced Landis could not have nailed about the Black community that I'm sure Eddie and Arsenio and all the other people working on that movie nailed. You know, there's just some things they got so perfect. So perfect. And I think what's so interesting is that Wes Anderson is my favorite modern-day director. <laughs> I know which, every single which, Wes Anderson I know a lot movie. of Black people who feel that way, and yet Anderson, Tim Burton... Some of my absolute favorite directors, I'm just going to say it, there you can count on one hand the number of Black people they have in their films. So that's an issue. And that's, Absolutely. I think that's the perfect segue into season two of, of Sherman Showcase because in season two of Sherman Showcase, we actually imagine what a Sherman McDaniels movie, uh, we, we like to say on our show that Sherman McDaniels is always ahead of his time. There's a, 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 a fake trailer for a movie directed by Sherman McDaniels that Wes Anderson saw and then directed all of his movies based upon that trailer. But for us as creators, it was just an excuse for us to sort of wish fulfillment, sort of throw mm -hmm. ourselves into a Wes Anderson film and sort of do the film that Wes Anderson can do because he never uses black actors. So yeah, yeah he's allergic that's, that's to black people. Pitch. I mean, I don't his, get his it. films are white with a capital H in the middle. Um, okay, but so enough about so Wes well Anderson. Done. Anyway. Okay. I want to talk about Diallo Riddle. Um, are you ready to answer the blackest questions? Let's get into it. Okay, let's get started. Question number one. Considered by many to be the greatest college football player of all time, this former American football running back played in the NFL for 12 seasons and is the Republican nominee in the 2022 race for a seat in the United <laughs> States Senate. Well, my my blood went cold when you asked the sports question because I am not the biggest uh, sports guy. But I know this because I'm from Atlanta and by extension, Georgia, <laughs> by way of Athens, uh, Herschel Walker, um, who... You know, growing up, like there were a few names that I knew in sports that loomed bigger than Herschel Walker. There was, there was, uh, there was Dominique Wilkins. There, there, there were a couple, but but Herschel was like such a hero when I was a kid, and uh, to see him now, it's just, uh, man, he, you know, I don't even know what to say about Herschel. 
Well, I always say this about us. It's, you know, if, if I were a few years older, I really do think that we would be best friends. Because on this podcast, I talk a lot about how Dominique Wilkins was my favorite basketball player. Growing <laughs> up. But so Herschel Walker is a freshman at the University of Georgia. He helped the Bulldogs win the 1980 championship. He was yeah. an All-American honors track and field. He won the Heisman in 1982. He broke a world record in the 60-yard dash and represented the U.S. in the 1992 Winter Olympics in bobsledding. Uh, he's has a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. Um, he was went undefeated as a mixed martial arts fighter. He had a pro football career. He played for the Jersey Generals, the Dallas Cowboys, Minnesota Vikings, Philadelphia Eagles, and the New York Giants. He's got all pro and pro bowl honors. And he's been diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder as a result of trauma he experienced in childhood. He's dedicated his life to helping others struggling with mental health issues. Oh, he's also great. the Republican nominee where he has said some pretty egregious things about black people and black families. So oh, oh. I brought this up because I do know that you're from Atlanta and I know that, you know, you, you love Georgia and you've been following Georgia politics quite you no, know, I don't know if I can say I love Georgia. Ooh, you know, I love Atlanta. I love Atlanta. love Atlanta. Yeah, you know, I love Atlanta. And Athens is cool. Uh, I've never set foot in Savannah or Macon or Augusta. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, I did set foot in Dallas, Georgia, but that was because my first job as a, as a teenager was at Six Flags Over Georgia. It's in the little city of Austell slash Dallas, Georgia. Um, Georgia's interesting, man. I mean, like, at least Atlanta's spreading out, like, as Atlanta continues to blossom, like we continue to spread out from the Atlanta metro area. But um, no, you know, that's even interesting because I feel like some people supported the Georgia Bulldogs growing up. The city folks, I feel like we rooted more for Georgia Tech, just mm. being honest. Do you know what I mean? So, uh -huh. um, yeah, it's, it's just complicated. The relationship of Atlanta and Georgia is just a really complicated relationship. You know, there there's right. some really beautiful places in the rural areas, but. No, I, I can't say that, uh, you know, Georgia is, um, I always say I'm from Atlanta for a reason. I never, I never say, I'm, oh, I, I grew up in Georgia. That just sounds weird. Right. Well, I think that's so fascinating, though, because as someone who studies cities, and I, I love cities because cities are basically where a lot of Black people live. I love ordering Thai food at two in the morning. You know, that's right. just me. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's so many things that a city brings. But I do think that, you know, I always tell people all states are red states. It's just yeah. you have enough blue cities in your red state to flip the state, <laughs> you know, every four years. Isn't that crazy? And yeah. All states. I mean, look at New York. I'm, I tell my students all the time, there are places in New York State I wouldn't go to at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and so, you know, you've got these blue centers uh, in, in these massively red places. Now, do you follow Georgia politics or have you gone full California? Oh, no, I, I listen. Uh, admittedly, I, I feel like I follow things. I sometimes because, I, I, you know, we, you and I both know people who live in, and breathe in politics all day. So I know that I'm not. But, I, but absolutely, I still follow it. Yeah, let's talk about John Ossoff and, and, and Raphael Warnock. Let's talk That's about it. All right. Okay, so before we get to question number two, we're going to take yeah. a brief break with our guest, Diallo Riddle. Witty, honest, entertaining. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app for all the black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard. And we're back. I've got Diallo Riddle with me to play the Blackest Questions. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited about that sponsor that we just listened to. I'm definitely going to throw some money their way. <laughs> You're the greatest. Um, okay. <laughs> You're one for one. I say, let's keep going. Question number two. Mm -hmm. You ready? Let's rock and roll. Released in 2021, all of the major characters in this Western were based on real life historical figures. What film is this? The harder they come. 
close. Oh, wait, uh, the harder they fall? That's right. I'm one of those people that, that just changes one word. <laughs> I mean, in, I know the, the song show. too well. I know the, <laughs> I know the uh, Jimmy Cliff song a little too well. Uh, yeah, like, what a great, great movie. I love everything about it. Was it Jesse Samuels who did this one? James Samuels. James Samuels, I'm so sorry. But I, I, I know a little bit about how long it took him to sell his vision. And he didn't want to do it on the cheap. He wanted to do it with a with a big cast and with some big numbers. And 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 really just just props to Netflix for giving him the chance to do that because this movie is incredible. Ugh. I love it so much. I love Black History. I love telling the truth about the Old West, which was far blacker than you would ever know from growing up on the films of, of John Wayne and John Ford. Uh, you know, like it's just. It's, it's, it's a slice of American history that I think that I've been trying to tell since I've been in high school. I remember in high school, I wrote like a short story about a, a, a Union soldier, a black Union soldier, who became disillusioned during Reconstruction and moved out west and uh, sort of ran afoul of a, uh, of a really sort of gnarly character named Texas Holler, and uh, who was another you know, black guy who had served with them in the same division, but they had gone very separate ways in the old West. And I just feel like, thank God nowadays, that every now and then a, a legit black filmmaker gets the chance to tell these stories with a budget because Lord knows, you know, it's not hard. Everybody's got a movie studio in mm -hmm. their pocket with their phone, but like to actually produce a big budget film is sort of like the next frontier for us. And I think that that, that movie is just outstanding. Well, I mean, you know, The Harder They Fall, which is so beautifully done. I mean, I've seen it so many times. Directed by James Samuel, who co-wrote the screenplay with Boaz Yakin. Um, and so it's the fictional characters in the film share their names with real-life historical figures. And, you know, obviously here on The Blackest Questions, I argue that Black history is American history, and it's international yeah. history, and it's diasporic, yeah. and we should all know it. So we've got Regina King as Gertrude Treacherous Trudy Smith. Uh, we've got Jonathan Majors as Nat Love, a Tennessee man remembered as a skilled cowboy um, from South Dakota. We've got my secret boyfriend, Delroy Lindo. He's not aware of that, <laughs> but we go together. Um, as the longest-serving deputy U.S. Marshal in Indian Territory, Bass Reeves. We've got Keith Stanfield, who's Cherokee Bill, Zazie Betts, who's stagecoach Mary Fields. And so Samuels, he hopes to call attention to how Black pioneers shaped the culture and history of the American West, but have since been cut out of its legacy, which, as yeah. you said, is so true. You know, you watch a lot of these movies, whether it's about World War II or whether it's about the American West, and you're hard-pressed to find so many Black folks who served this nation, served other nations, and lost their lives to do yeah. so, and they're just kind of erased from Forgotten about. I mean, like, I, I, I love Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker, but I, I don't even, I get triggered oh, when I hear mentions of saving Private Ryan just because there were Mary and Negro in the film. <laughs> there were black soldiers at, at, at D-Day, and I just feel like, you know, how can you leave that out? So I feel like there's so much correction that we need to uh, mm -hmm. to do. And and by the way, Bashir and I are working on a, on a Paramount feature right now, uh, a feature for Paramount Pictures, that I think will, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of composite characters. I can't say it's, it's even based on true characters the way that uh, The Harder They Fall is, but like it does speak to a certain uh, type of black person who sort of like after World War One was done with the uh, racism in this country and sort of struck out on their own. And it sort of marries our love of actual history with our love of, you know, the classic action adventures of, you know, uh, Indiana Jones and Alan Quartermain and the Lost World and all those kind of like great, uh, the, the, the sort of defining texts of the action adventure genre. 
because that's another type of, of, of movie, of film genre that I just feel like they're not enough uh, black characters represented in. Oh my gosh, I can't Very wait. excited about that one. Whatever yeah. you and Bashir produce, I want to see it. I want to just indulge in it. And I know, and I know in my soul that it's going to be a serious like love letter and historical foundation <laughs> for black people. Okay, so let's take a brief break with Diallo Riddle and we'll be right back. Witty, honest, entertaining. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app for all the black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard. Okay, we are back. I'm here with Diallo Riddle. Talking black history, black movies, all the things. Thank you so much for joining me at The Blackest Questions. Are you ready? Thank you for having question me. Question number three. You're killing the game over here, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm scared those questions are about to get much harder. <laughs> just, as, just as gauche as, as one does. Okay, question number three. Here we go. Let's rock and roll. This African-American modern contemporary dance choreographer took his dance theater company on successful tours on every continent throughout the 1960s and 80s solidifying his legendary status amongst the pioneers, Horton and Catherine Dunham. Who was he? I believe that's Alvin Ailey. You are correct. That's <laughs> Alvin Ailey, born January 5th in 1931 in a small town in Texas. Ailey began his dance training at the age of 11 by being exposed to classical, social, and folk dances, as well as new techniques of modern dance. His family moved to LA in 1942. Uh, and then in 1958, he formed his own dance company. And it was mainly composed uh, primarily of black folks and they toured extensively both in the US and abroad. Uh, and he started this when opportunities obviously for African-American dancers like himself were severely limited. And he mm. created this dance style that was developed from his memories of growing up in the South and his careful observation of human movement. And wow, so I did not know that part. That's really cool. The company's there's signature definitely that piece, style. Yes. Okay. Revelations mm -hmm. and has been in the dance theater's repertory uh, since 1960. And it's a powerful early work by Ailey that is set to African American spirituals and is considered a choreographic masterpiece. Sadly, Ailey died on December 1st, 1989, in New York. Now, for me, Diallo, Christmas season doesn't begin until I see Alvin Ailey. Ever since I was young, it's like Ailey is a must. Are you, you know, I know you come from a really artistic family. You know, your dad was a sculptor and a painter. You know, I know that your your grandparents are sort of, you know, spent some time in, in California. Now, have you seen Ailey? And is that something that is kind of part, I know your your partner it was a former dancer and I know in, in the arts world as well. Like, is that mm -hmm. something that uh, is part of your, your foundation? Yeah, I, I think black art in general has been there from the very beginning for me. I mean, like I, my first, uh, some of my first memories as a, as a child is sort of like running between the legs of like the, the adults at uh, an art gallery opening. And like, you know, to me, the, the smell of art was like red wine, which is so funny to me um, <laughs> because as a, as, a, as a child, I felt like I was always around like silky clothes and, and red wine. Um, and yeah, you're totally right. My wife is a, a, a dancer and, and choreographer. She's actually the choreographer on a Sherman Showcase. So I feel like to this day, I'm still surrounded by you know, ballet and contemporary and jazz and, uh, you know, Fosse and Dunham and, and you know, these things are, are just sort of second nature for me through her. But I think that, uh, yeah, I think that anytime, you know, even as a writer, I always tell young writers who have come up and ask, well, how can I, how can I break into TV like you and Bashir? I'm always like, you know, to a certain extent, write what you know. Now, some people take that as to mean, 
right? You know, like in the case of Alvin Ailey, he's interpreting movements that he saw as a child in Texas. Um, but I would actually put out there that writing what you know doesn't have to be quite so literal. You know, mm -hmm. like George Lucas, you know, made a fortune writing about space and he's not an astronaut. So how do you get to, well, he, it turns out he loved Flash Gordon serials uh, from like, you know, the, the serial features from his youth. And he reinterpreted that in the 70s and made Star Wars. And I feel the same way about it doesn't have to literally be like, oh, I grew up on this block in New York, so I'm going to write a story that takes place on that block in New York. It can be that. I think to a certain extent, shows like Southside Wind, because our writers being from Chicago are writing about the Chicago that they know, the Chicago they hadn't seen on any other TV show. But if your thing is horror or if it's detective stuff or like whatever, whatever really gets you going, then that is what you know. So when I say write what you know, it's whatever you would probably do for free, whatever you're just naturally interested in yeah. and just figure out your way of interpreting that through your art. That would be my advice to anybody uh, trying to make it in this business. Oh, I think that's such brilliant advice too. I mean, because I think sometimes people are so literal and so they want to get trapped in, in sort of stuck to just like the Don't, don't end up in that. Listen, there are enough, you know, unfortunately most execs in Hollywood still white. They will definitely try and steer you towards the, well, what's the black version of this? And I think one thing that Bashir and I, even though everything we do, like we said, like coming I mean, to America, it's very black, but it's also decidedly in some ways not black at all. Like it's right. the, the, some of the things, some of the specific details are details that, you know, black people and, and black aware audiences will appreciate. Um, at the same time, we're really just writing humanity. Well, before we go for break, I just want to say, um, I think it's season two, episode four or season two, episode five, correct me which one, uh, the the ode to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think <laughs> yes, for so many black people. Episode four. Episode yeah. four. I think that is a cinematic masterpiece uh, because yeah. it's a it's a black interpretation. And so many of us watched Ferris Bueller's Day growing up. Uh, and we love that movie. And no, there weren't any black people in that movie at all. Even Wait, no, there were. There were. And oh, there are a few. There are a few. No, okay. no. Listen, it's that it's that thing where like you love something, but being black, you're also aware of its black flaws. So in that movie, it's like a great movie, and almost like the movie Cheers. You're happy as a black person that they didn't try and just throw some black people in there, <laughs> and then this group of black people come out dancing yes, during the dancing. parade sequence, and you're like. Wait a second. We, I've never, I've been black a long time. I've never done that with my friends. Right. <laughs> like, and, like, and we still, we sometimes we, it's better if you just leave us out. Leave us, leave if us you alone. Try and throw us in there and it's wrong. It sort of takes me out of the movie for a little bit. Yeah. They got me back in, but I didn't love that scene. The, the dancing scene, the Coca Cola, and also don't forget the guys, <laughs> the parking attendants, the black Latino dudes who steal the I house. always thought they were Latino. One of them's, I actually, okay, fun fact in our episode of Southside, the, the, the young guy, the young guy who falls off the car in our episode is the son of one of those guys from yeah. the actual Ferris Bueller movie. Um, I'm so deep into Southside, I knew that fact. I was going to let you tell it to our audience, but I knew that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stump you with something today. You have I'm no, stump you with something. I feel like, you know what? You need to start a Southside slash Coming to America podcast and bring me on and see how much I know. <laughs> well, I think you'd blow us out the first episode. We'd have nothing left to talk about. Right, you'd be right. basically like, on set. I'm addicted. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a brief break and come on back with my guest, Diallo Riddle. 
And we're back at the Blackest Questions. Thank you so much for joining us. Diallo Riddle is here with us, and he's doing so incredibly well. Three for three. I am getting 100, 100% so far, just like in real school. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. Uh, and But, you know, for our listeners at home, don't forget the whole purpose of this is to, to learn something along the way. So you might be 0 for 3. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Black history is American history. We're just going to we're gonna do our best. Okay? Okay, so question number four. You ready? Yep. This is the first Black-owned architectural firm in the United States and is the oldest Black-owned architecture and engineering firm in the country. Is it, um, is it Paul Williams? No, it's McKissick and McKissick. Oh, I, just, is, I wasn't even close to knowing this. Okay, teach me something. So it was founded in 1905 by Moses okay. McKissick III and his brother Calvin Lunsford McKissick in Nashville, Tennessee. And the McKissick brothers had building and design in their blood. Their grandfather, Moses McKissick, came to America in 1790 as an enslaved person. It was owned by a prominent contractor who used him as a builder. McKissick passed the trade down to his son, who in turn trained his sons. So the McKissick brothers became the first black licensed architects in the southeastern U.S. and went on to design many homes, churches, schools, and other buildings, including the Morris Memorial Building in Nashville and the 99th Pursuit Squadron Air Base in Tuskegee, Alabama, which was the largest federal contract at the time ever given to a black owned firm. And in 1990, Daryl McKissick, the granddaughter of Moses McKissick III, opened her own firm in Washington, D.C. The firm, which now has offices in Austin, Houston, Chicago, Washington, Baltimore, Los Angeles, and Dallas, has contributed to many significant civic projects, including the MLK Memorial and the National mm. Museum of African American History and Culture on oh, the wow. National Mall. So, cool. Black people are everywhere, not just in arts <laughs> and culture, but we're well. also building things that, that are just part of uh, sort of the literal American landscape. So you live in Atlanta, you're, or you live in LA, you're from Atlanta with mm -hmm. some amazing architecture in both places. Uh, there are lots of obviously prominent black architects who are groundbreaking in US infrastructure and who oftentimes um, go unnoticed. How do you think, you know, just knowing, I guess I'm trying to create a parallel between the work you're doing in Hollywood where you and Bashir are still breaking boundaries as black writers and showrunners and creating opportunities for so many people in your field. How can we translate that to so many other fields? I mean, you've given us some great advice about writing what we know, but like right. what other kind of foundational generic advice do you have for folks who well, try to I essentially think, be groundbreakers? Like architects, Bashir and I always set out to build stuff that's timeless and will be appreciated 80 years from now, long after we're gone. Um, so that so there's that parallel, but I, I I would be remiss if I did not mention that my grandfather, uh, John Williams, John Williams, John Riddle Senior, uh, worked for Paul Williams, Paul Revere Williams, who is sort of like the to me he's he's just the master black architect. Uh, so if for those, I, I bet you some of your listeners know this, but uh, if you live in L.A., some of our most iconic buildings were built by this black architect. That's the weird structure at LAX that looks like a spaceship. That's the Beverly Hills Hotel with the sort of iconic sign. Uh, homes from everybody from Frank Sinatra to Marvin Gaye. They're all Paul Williams uh, buildings. The man is like, mm -hmm. just, I joined the LA Conservancy in part to make sure that his architectural legacy is never messed with by people, you know, developers who would just come in and knock down a home or knock down like one of these classic Paul R. Williams buildings. Uh, and I'm proud to say that my grandfather, who studied architecture, 
at USC uh, was one of the people who worked for his firm. So I always even said before I even knew that, oddly enough, that if I wasn't pursuing what I was pursuing, I would have pursued uh, architecture because to me, it's very similar when you're trying to build, you know, a house or something. like essentially it's like if you envision it, you want to build it. You want to mm-hmm. make it real in the world. So nowadays I envision these movies and, and part of what we do is like we imagine what the set looks like. Or we imagine the location that we're filming in because we're trying to imagine this thing. And I think it's very similar to a person who will see uh, an empty lot or an empty mm-hmm. field and sort of imagine, well, what goes here and how does it look? Uh, you know, I'm so proud that the Riddle family is a part of the Paul Williams legacy here in Los Angeles. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. And I, I'm excited for the, the prospect of one day I'll be going to a, a Riddle Salahuddin uh, film and knowing that you actually built the sets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, you, you, you bring it up. I, I would love to find one, if any of the Paul Williams theaters are still standing, um, maybe we can do a, a premiere there. That would that would that would be oh coming full circle. Full yeah. circle, and the spirit of your grandfather obviously would be right there. Yeah. Um, that's such a, a beautiful legacy. Um, okay, so we're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back with Diallo Riddle. Don't forget, you can listen to the Griot's Writing Black podcast hosted by me, Maisha Kai. This isn't your typical writing podcast. We interview any and everybody that has anything to do with writing, from comics to poets to authors to journalists to politicians and more. Remember, that's Writing Black every Sunday right here on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. Download the Griot's app to listen to Writing Black wherever you are. And we're back with our guest, Diala Riddle. Thank you all so much for joining us at The Blackest Questions. I'm not, at 100%, I'm not at 100% anymore, but I'm going to get this last one. You're not at 100%, but you're doing incredibly well. And I hope our listeners are really appreciating sort of you sharing so many uh, family stories with us as well. Okay, final question before we go to Black Lightning. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Located in the central region of Ghana, it's the oh. oldest European structure in sub-Saharan Africa. What is it? European structure in sub-Saharan Africa. <sighs> I'm going to go with... Oh, this is going to drive me nuts. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have it. I, I don't know this one. Well, hopefully our Ghanaian listeners snag this one. It's St. George Castle, also known as Elmina Castle. It's about a three okay. and a half hour drive along the coast from Accra and was constructed by the Portuguese or the construction began in 1482. And originally Elmina Castle was not built for the purpose of holding and trading enslaved people, but it was instead a trading post for gold mm. and other African goods. And so Beautiful. it's from this trade that the name Elmina was derived from the Portuguese named for Da Costa de Elmina de Oro, which is the coast of gold mines. And the 91,000 square foot behemoth was one of the principal slave depots in the transatlantic slave trade for more than three centuries. And so when European powers began to invade the continent of Africa for enslaved people, Elmina became an essential stop on the slave route and a prison of sorts for captives. And so today in the town of Elmina, which is a lively bustling hub, the castle towers above it and it's a painful reminder of the past. And so I've spent some time in Ghana. Have you been to the continent? Have you been to West Africa to travel around? Or no, has your work sort of kept you stateside? For no, I mean, like, it's, 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 it's something I've never gotten around to doing. I, I've gone through airports there, but I've never gone 
to go there. Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm definitely hoping to fix pretty soon. But everything's a lot harder when you have uh, three small children, which I have. And uh, just the idea of going to <laughs> the idea of going from L.A. to San Diego seems scary. Uh, right. the kids, you know, just the kids are going to do what they're going to do. Um, it's, it's so funny you bring this up because I felt like I, I knew roughly what this was going to involve once you started talking. I, I feel like it had to be about trade. And I, you and I met in some weird way through Harvard University. And when I was a student there, uh, believe it or not, my, my focus was on sub-Saharan trade. Um, you know, I studied the, but, but that was my part of, of African history that I, that I truly appreciated because, you know, that was when things didn't have to get so messed up. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when, when the Arab, you know, states to the North were trading, with the sub-Saharan uh, uh, states and they were, you know, trading for salt, for gold and, you know, like the, the, the fortunes of Timbuktu, like that was the stuff that I was really into, you know, sort of like that from Fez in, in modern day Morocco down to the, to the, you know, to the kingdom of Mali. Like that was a really exciting, you know, time. And, and I love studying that stuff because, you know, like I said, that was before things went truly south. So it doesn't surprise me that's something that represents sort of like a, a free exchange of ideas and wealth uh, sort of becoming perverted and corrupted into, you know, a housing station for, for human lives. Uh, you know, that's very disappointing, but not surprising, unfortunately. Not surprising at all. Now, yeah. do you have a bucket list of places? I mean, I know you and Bashir have been going nonstop, not just with television shows, but, you know, various <laughs> projects that you all are working on. You know, yeah. when you finally take a break, and you have the Coming to America podcast with me and you have me on. When you design, <laughs> you know, some homes in L.A. and secure grandpa's right. legacy for a whole bunch of things. Uh, when you have some time for some travel, whether it's with yeah. the kids or not, what's on your bucket list? Uh, so much time. First off, I, just so you know, I always tell my kids, don't call it a bucket list because you're not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> but I think that, uh, listen, I... It's a sore subject just because I have been trying to take just a week, just seven continuous days off since the beginning of the year, and it has not happened. And I don't think I'm going to get that seven days off until Christmas, realistically, because we have so much in the works between six new shows that we're developing and two movie ideas. Um, but that said, uh, you know, I think South Africa is a big uh, destination for me. My, I have a niece who's studying uh, abroad over there, and that just gives me just enough impetus to try and make it to South Africa. Um, I, admittedly, the, the kids are really into anime right now, so we, we've sort of tried to figure out a way to get to Tokyo, and so that they can sort of see the, the anime and the culture. I, I went to Tokyo when I was about 15, and it left a lasting impression on me, mm -hmm. uh, so that one's high on the list. Uh, there's a uh, Bali because you know we have some friends who own a a, a beachfront uh, coffee stand there and and I feel like that would be a great place to sort of turn off the phone, turn off the Wi-Fi, and just you know veg out for a little bit and then um and then admittedly London because I I'm still sort of a a listener of music it, it bothers me that I was such an early adopter of UK grime and sort of what eventually became the the UK drill music that's taken over our current domestic hip hop. Uh, but I was never able to go over there. I haven't been to the UK since uh, probably about 15, maybe even closer to 20 years now. So mm -hmm. uh, that's another place that I feel like culturally, I would just want to go and see what people are doing now. Because, uh, you know, when you do something like Sherman Showcase, it's really an excuse to, you know, sort of put out the music that you're really into. 
Right. And uh, I, right now I feel like it's harder than ever with sort of the collapse of terrestrial radio. It's really hard sort of knowing what's the new music, what's next. I can't yeah. listen to the local power station or, you know, real FM and sort of get any sense of what's happening other than like the latest Drake or Nicki Minaj song. And I just, I feel like there's another music. I feel like this decade got off to a weird start, but I feel like the music that will define this decade hasn't been created yet. And it's mm. very interesting to me what that music will be because I sort of listen to music. Uh, I feel like music keeps me like, keeps my spirit young and I'm always into whatever new music is popping. So right. that's important to me. Okay, so we're going to take a brief break and then when we come back, we're going to play Black Bonus Round. Done. Okay, we're back. Diallo, before I let you out of here, we've got time for Black Bonus Round. Now this is what I like to call Black Lightning. I ask you just a, some, some brief questions and you just give me the answer that comes to your head. There's no right or wrong answer. This is just about Diallo. You ready? Let's do it. Yep. Okay. If you had to choose, is it acting or DJ? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I think it would probably depend on uh, the project, but I think for right now, uh, acting, I've, I've DJed. I've DJed music festivals. I, I've done a lot of the DJing thing. And, uh, and I think that, you know, one, there's one project in particular that we're working on that's going to address in its own unique way uh, the mental health uh, deficiencies in the Black community. The fact that so many of us don't, you know, turn to therapy. The fact that so many of us don't have jobs that pay for therapy. Um, mm -hmm. We have a project in that field that I will be acting in that I'm super excited and, I'm, and we've never tried anything like this before. So I think just the sort of like adventure of the unknown, I would say acting. Okay. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Black yeah. Panther or Coming to America? Ooh. Dang, those are great movies. I mean, <laughs> sort of hidden in your question is Zamunda or Wakanda? Right. I think Wakanda is way better. I think, look, I love Coming to America, but... Zamunda was kind of like a, a dictatorship, and I don't know, like you know, what what happens if your sister ends up in the in the Wipers Guild? Like that's terrible. So <laughs> see, I, I, I don't mean, know. I don't know, Diallo. I mean, listen, this is your time to answer these questions, no, but I'm a loyal citizen of Zamunda. I just feel like Wakanda. You had all this technology. You didn't help your black brothers and sisters <laughs> in the United States. I'm totally Team Killmonger. I absolutely understand why he came back and had vengeance. So it's like you know, maybe I am you know a, a wiper. But, but, look, I hear all that. So you're talking about you're talking about Wakandan foreign affairs, but I would argue that Zamunda. Class inequity is also a problem. So maybe neither neither nation state is perfect. This is why we need a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is I, why we I, need just a pure I, coming to America podcast. Hey, give, give me either side of this debate. I think a case can be made in either way in a good way. So yeah, I'm totally down to debate which is better because I've long thought like, loving coming to America, but I've, I've often thought like, Man, this place does not yeah. seem equal. No, it does, it does not. Um, okay, here we go. This is a hot take. Best stand-up comedian, Marlon Wayans or Damon Wayans? Um, I don't know. I don't even know which Marlon would say. Uh, for right now, I'm going to say Damon Wayans just because I feel like his specials, you know, they, they, they hit really big at the time. I feel like Marlon will tell you himself that he is still finding his uh his his voice and his way as a as a as a stand up but I will also say 
that if we're talking in the last 20 or 25 years, Marlon by a long shot. I feel like Marlon has come out with uh, at least two great specials in the last couple of years. And I think his next special, which I think it's, I forget the name of it. I think it's called like God Loves Me or something like that. I think it's going to blow people's minds. Uh, well, I think it's going to actually put him at the top. Yeah, I really like him as a dramatic actor. I mean, ever mm-hmm. since Requiem for a Dream, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Like, <laughs> shut it down. Here we are. Okay. Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles? Stevie Wonder. Okay. And it's probably generational, but Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have this Ray Charles Betty Carter album that I'll I'll make sure I send you some. Send some it to me. Send it to me, and I'll I'll send you these uh, unreleased Stevie Wonder B sides the Questlove gave me, and then and then you'll be like, yes. <laughs> okay. Oh well, you know. Listen, I'm I'm Team Stevie, but I do love Ray Charles. Okay, so reality guilty too. pleasure goes to Real Housewives of Atlanta or Real uh-huh. Housewives of Potomac. Atlanta. Even though when Atlanta first started, I had an issue with it because I was like. This doesn't seem like the Atlanta that I know, but what's weird is that as time has gone on, Atlanta has started to copy the show. It's really weird. Mm, and can mm-hmm. I just put in a vote for, um, I think I think Potomac, I, I, admittedly I watch them all, but uh, I shout out to my friend Akila Green, who's one of the funniest writers I know in Hollywood. We're also big fans of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, if only because uh, we love Garcelle, which brings us all the way back to coming to America. Coming to America. Okay. <laughs> Quickly, someone comes to the DJ booth and requests 90s hip-hop. What are you grabbing first? Uh, Try Call Quest is my first thought. Maybe then Wu-Tang. Here's the thing about Wu-Tang songs. You can play them. I have not heard them in a club setting ever a lot of times, especially now, because even when they were popular, they were not club songs. Right. So you get to hear them. But here's what you don't know. The DJs know. The RZA mastered those tracks in a very sort of grimy, sort of like fuzzy way. So they don't sound amazing in the club. Like they sound better in headphones. Oh. It's just, they were they were mastered to be played in like old Sony Walkman. And they don't sound great in the club. Like the, the, the music is not like separated in gotcha. the way that you'd expect a club. So, so be, be surprised. Be prepared to work those EQ knobs. Like maybe you want to turn down the mids and pump the bass, but like oh. they don't sound like you think they're going to sound uh, in the club. Just That's fair fascinating. Warning. Well, yeah. my fr- my favorite of the I talk, plan. I can talk about DJing '90s hip hop all day. Okay, well <laughs> then I'll, I'm just going to call you and have you just walk me through the the brilliance that is Old Dirty Bastard's solo album. I can talk about that all day long. I think it's a masterpiece. Okay. Uh, oh, you talk about Return to the Thirty Six. Return to the 36? Yes. Is that the one you're talking about? Return yes. to the 36 Chambers with Brooklyn Zoo? Perfect. Per- Perfect amazing album. album. I, I I go back and listen to the song Rawhide. Go back and listen to the yep. song Rawhide. It is a well, slept I on listen- gem from that album. I listen to his album from start to finish because I have it on wax, so I literally play the record because I think it's that great. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's great. That's the way it was meant to be heard. Last question before I let you out of here. Shrimp and grits or chicken and waffles? Shrimp and grits. I love shrimp and grits. Uh, the Riddle family, half of us find our, you know, trace our, our lineage back to New Orleans. Uh, when I thought I was going to have a week off in September, I was like, let's go to New Orleans because, you know, I, I got I got New Orleans people in the family. So, you know, I, shrimp and grits all day. Shrimp and grits all day. Well, Diala Riddle, I'm so happy for you and Bashir and the success of Sherman Showcase, uh, which is coming out October 26th, season two. Um, yeah. And Southside, uh, when's season three coming out? 
season three is coming out later this year. I know the date. I'm not allowed to give it out yet, but follow me at Diallo, D-I-A-L-L-O on Instagram. And I guarantee you, you'll be able to find the date that we drop season three of Southside. It's an amazing season. You'll get to know all the characters better. It's going to be great. Thank you for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Akila Shedrick, Jesse Vargas, and Sasha Armstrong. I want to thank our guests for this week's episode, Diallo Riddle. And if you like what you heard, please download the Grio app and listen and watch many more great shows and share it with everyone you know. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. All the black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard.